Join us for another episode of the Engineering Commons podcast as we talk with aeronautical engineer Mark French about degrees and careers in engineering technology, as well as delving into wind tunnels, guitars, and how to launch a ping pong ball at supersonic speeds. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 59, Engineering Technology, July 10th, 2014. So Carmen, do you consider yourself a technologist? Isn't that a Daft Punk song? Um, I'm not really a big fan. Not that I don't like them, they're just not my fan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not enough a, a big enough fan to tell you whether it's part of their... Uh, repertoire or not yeah i don't know i'm not up on what the kids are listening to nowadays but i know it's a it's something they yell out in a song okay but in the all the uh the urgency for more engineers we end up with you know the uh the more stem professionals uh science and technology and engineering and math and they're sort of lumped together mm-hmm. and uh i you know i think we go on the spectrum some some engineers work uh, very much towards the the technology side, and some work more towards the abstract, you know, mathematics side, and some are more scientists. And uh, so there, it takes a, an entire range of engineers in order to get the job done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess you know, if, if we're looking at it as a spectrum, uh, I, I kind of have to straddle the middle the middle of it with my job. Uh, you know, I do get very sciencey when you know you're chasing down thermal problems on an IC, but you know the in the end, these products have to go in laptops and cell phones and tablets or whatever. Whoever the heck buys them has got to stick them somewhere. So it's nice to know the overarching trends of the industry. Right. So when you see the new phone or you see the new motherboard that's the size of a deck of cards, you're like, oh, well, that's that's why the power, the processor has to draw so little power and I'm on these tight specs. Right. Well, and we had, uh, we've talked at times about how engineering education sometimes seems a bit abstract. And that, that maybe there was a way to do a little more hands-on uh, type education. We've, we've probably touched on that at least once or twice, yeah. Uh, there's a division of, you know, engineering, a portion of engineering education which addresses that. And, in fact, we've gotten from our listeners, we've gotten requests for doing an episode about engineering technology. And so we decided we'd do that. And our guest for this episode is Mark French, who's a professor for the Department of Mechanical Engineering Technology within Purdue University School of Engineering Technology. An aeronautical engineer by training, Mark is a researcher in the areas of musical acoustics, high-speed dynamics, and green energy aerodynamics. Uh, in his spare time, he's been known to lead guitar-building workshops, and he's even written a book on that subject. Uh, so it's obvious that he has some maker tendencies, and we tend to like those who have a bit of the maker tendency. So, Mark, welcome to the Engineering Commons. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for taking uh, time to join us. No problem. Now that I know you wrote a book on making guitars, I already have a gift for my brother for his birthday in a month. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I actually wrote two books. Oh, all right. Well, Christmas is covered, too. There you go. (laughs) Favorite guest ever. (laughs) Terrific. So, Mark, we normally uh, start our interviews just by asking people how they got got interested in engineering. Oh, gosh. Um, My dad is an engineer, and I, I guess I probably picked it up from him. Um, I've always liked making things, and I've always liked um, airplanes, and I think I probably just uh, took that. I, I When I went to college to, to be an aerospace engineer, I never really considered anything else. 
Um, in, at Purdue, anyway, they figure the average student has 2.8 uh, majors over the course of their school career. I went, <laughs> I went, I'm the exact opposite of that. Throughout my entire education, I only ever had one, uh, uh, one major. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do they figure 2.8 majors? You start as like <laughs> physics, and then go to engineering, and then engineering tech, and then like liberal arts, or is it like? Yeah, I don't know what that last point eight is. It's. <laughs> Jump around the whole spectrum. Yeah, get, yeah, get a minor in something. Yeah, they're they're finding themselves. Yeah, well, there's a lot of that going on though. Really, oh, the, yeah. we get uh, in engineering technology, we get a lot of people transferring in from other places, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, a lot of them find that they they've gone into engineering and uh, it's 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 good, but it's it's very abstract. It's engineering science, you know, as it's designed to be. And they're looking for something much more hands-on, and so that's the, that's how a lot of them find their way to engineering technology. Yeah, that's actually uh, what happened to my one of my roommates in college was he switched from mechanical engineering to mechy tech, and he was much happier afterwards. Yeah, we, we get that a lot. Yeah, so it's, it's still an honorable career shift. We're not looking down on it at all. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Yeah, and I, actually, I, I I I co-opt with. Uh, he, he kind of mentored me. He was leaving, and then I was coming into the job. So he trained me for a while, and then he ended up getting a job. He's working at a nuclear power plant now in New York State. So uh-huh. it sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I often hear from from people that, that just as soon uh, prefer to hire someone with an engineering technology degree just because they have some hands-on uh, experience and some sense of how to make things happen uh, as yeah. opposed to engineers who have more tendency to come in and, and want to make a uh, math problem out of it instead of getting the job over and done with yeah it it i it's funny because i my all my education was as an engineering was an engineer mm-hmm. um i didn't even know what engineering technology was before i got to purdue i mean i, I had to kind of get there and they had to explain it to me and uh i thought wow this is really pretty cool because i've got uh what, what did i figure out 12 years of aerospace engineering education yeah <laughs> and yeah, I'd be laughing too if I were you. And uh, <laughs> in, in no point in any of that did they let me anywhere near an airplane. Mm-hmm. And it was by the time I figured out that, uh, geez, we're not going to actually build any airplanes here. We're going to learn about them in the abstract. We're never actually going to build one. By the time I figured that out, it was too late. I had, had too much time invested in it. Oh, yeah, right. It's tough to make that switch when you've when you've got all that sunk cost. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I wasn't willing to. Um, I, I did have a job as a wind tunnel technician, and that made all the difference. That was the one place I could go and see, you know, sort of physically what we were learning about. And that was, that it was, it was good for that. And also, I was really skinny at the time, so I was the only one who could fit through the turning veins. <laughs> I, got, I got the job of going around to the back end of the tunnel and picking up all the pieces of stuff that had blown back there. Right. What sort of wind tunnel was it? It was a glamorous job. Yeah, <laughs> it. Uh, Ask what kind of wind tunnel it is. It's a six-foot low-speed stability tunnel uh-huh. at, uh, that NASA had donated to Virginia Tech, where I went to school. And it was it was really cool because it, it, you could tell it got a lot of hard use. The uh, when I was there anyway, the uh, uh, the control panel still had a sign on it that says "Caution: Do not arm warhead." <laughs> I thought, That's cool. <laughs> I don't have any cool <laughs> buttons like that at work. Yeah. Well, and the least glamorous job I had, well, one of the, I had a lot of, a lot of low glamour jobs, but one of the lowest glamour jobs I had was catching trash cans in the wind tunnel. 
actually sounds like fun. <laughs> well, it, it like kind of was actually. Is this there. like javelin? Is this like javelin catcher? We had a, a group come in that was making trash cans. You know those ones, those those green ones that you put out that have a little handle oh, on them yeah. so the truck can pick them up. Well, I have one out were, in front of my yard right now. Well, there you go. Think of the, one of those. And a company was was bidding to supply these to some uh, some town on the coast of Virginia somewhere. I can't remember where it was. And you know, trying to get a, a leg up on their competition, they said, "Well, let's let's figure out how much wind it takes to blow one of these things over." And so they showed up with trash cans, and for reasons I don't really understand, the, the professor in charge of the test left, figured we could do it. <laughs> and so, you know, you'd put the wind, the, the trash can in there and uh, turn it up till the trash can blew over and flew down the, the, the tunnel and hit the turning vanes. And after a while, we went, you know, it would be better if we had somebody down there just to catch it. <laughs> and so I got the job. <laughs> and again, I don't remember why I went along with this, but I I seem to think it would be fun to be inside a running wind tunnel. Yeah, and, I would uh, do it too. Yeah, yeah. Right and there with so you. the very first thing I learned was let the can hit the veins, then pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> first one I caught and pasted me back into the turning veins. And uh, the other thing you find out when you're doing that it, on the door to the wind tunnel, the door to the test section. There's only a handle on the outside. There's not one on the inside. So you had to hope no one took lunch. Well, it wasn't so much that. You had to, had to know who your friends were. That's, that too, yeah. <laughs> I'm standing there by this big plexiglass window. It's like, you guys going to let me out? They're like, no. <laughs> so there's my, my glorious wind tunnel career. Now, was this all at Virginia Tech? Yes. Okay. And I, I went to undergraduate school at Virginia Tech, and I went to graduate school at uh, University of Dayton. Right. And I'm guessing there was some uh, tie into the Air Force base there? Yes, absolutely. I, my first job out of college was I, I, as a civilian engineer for the Air Force at Wright-Patterson. And, you know, I had I had absolutely no thought of going to graduate school. I thought, geez, I, I survived this once. I'm, I'm not about to try this again. Right. And uh, the Air Force had an extremely generous program where they'd send you to, to night school. And I mean, they'd, they'd send you to night school. You just couldn't stand it anymore. And uh, I, you know, I, I knew about it. I didn't really think I was going to go. And then one of the guys in my office who was teaching a class at night school decided he needed another uh, another warm body for his his controls class. So he walked into my little cubicle and slapped his form down on my desk and said, "Here, fill this out. You're going to graduate school." <laughs> <laughs> and I just looked at him and went, "Um, okay." <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, so that was eight eight lovely years of night school started that way. Wow. Oof. And so, and so, can you tell us a little bit about the kind of research work you were doing for the Air Force? Sure. Um, my I, I did about three different things. Um, the first the first field I worked in was is a field called airway elasticity, which is um, how oh, how do I say this quickly? How uh, flexible structures move in the wind. Basically, you ever see okay. a, a stop sign twisting back and forth in the wind? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's sure. aeroelasticity. And it turns out airplanes will do that too. And that's generally bad. So is this, <laughs> is this flutter? <laughs> yeah, flutter is a form of aeroelasticity. There, there are others, but flutter is the one everybody, that's, that's the most dangerous, most likely to make your plane come apart. And so I did. How do you aer- avoid flutter? How do you do it, Flutter? Well, there's um, 
let's see, you design the, the, the wing so that the stiffness and mass are distributed around the wing so it won't flutter most of the time. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is that, that airplanes have so many different configurations. Like, you, you guys know what an F-16 is? Yeah. Oh, yes. It looks basically like a lawn dart. Mm-hmm. And there are, oh, I forgot how many. I want to say about 1,400 possible store downloadings. And they put these big masses under the wing. And so you... you oh, uh, like extra fuel tanks and missiles and stuff? E- exactly. You know, radar, not radar maybe, but guns and missiles and fuel tanks and cameras and all kinds of stuff they hang under there. And there's all these different combinations. And if you put enough mass in the wrong places, you can actually create a, a, a structure that'll flutter during flight. And that turns out to be bad. <laughs> in that type of situation, how do you evaluate, uh, like, for fuel when you have a continuously changing load as the fuel is consumed? Well, you know, it's, it's a problem <laughs> because you're, the, the mass changes. Yeah. As, you, as you know, the mass changes during flight. Um, it depends on where in the flight re- envelope you are, too. Uh, basically, you hope the, the, the thing is stiff enough and overbuilt enough that it's not going to flutter most of the time. The, uh, the, the real uh, difficult ones are where you wind up in a region where you're, you're stable, the, the plane won't flutter, and then you fire a missile or drop a bomb or something and get rid of all this weight, and you find yourself in a region where it does flutter. Mm-hmm. So and you fire again and hope you change it. Yeah, really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so anyway, I did aeroelasticity for a while, and then I drifted into a field called optimization, where you're trying to make the... Uh, structure of the airplane as light and as, as uh, I guess, effective or efficient as possible. And I did that for a while, and then um, about the time I got into my PhD, uh, again, doing, doing my PhD at night, um, I started working in a field called photomechanics, where we're using optical test methods to test structures. Mm-hmm. So I had, I had three really cool fields. This, this, it was really a lot of fun. Right. Yeah, it sounds like it. I, I, as much as I liked them all, I think I like photomechanics the best because that was experimental. You had to catch any garbage cans. You didn't have to catch garbage cans. <laughs> it was the, not, that, actually working a photo one of the photomechanics gigs. That was the only time I ever got to work on a real airplane. I got got to uh, test a uh, ventral fin on an F sixteen. Soon you say photomechanics, I'm I'm thinking of like imaging stress with polarization and plastic. Mm-hmm. That's that's one form of photomechanics. Okay, probably a primitive form, I imagine. Uh, well, I don't know if to say primitive. It, it you get some pretty neat results off of it. The the problem is it only works on. You either wind up having to build a structure that's that's transparent, and shoot through it, or you put a, you have to mold plastic onto a surface and you do reflective photoelasticity. Hmm. Uh, we spent a lot of time working with lasers. Uh, scanning laser vibrometers and video holography systems. Neat. By the way, I can tell you guys, I'm the probably the the youngest guy you'll ever meet who's done a wet plate hologram. <laughs> probably the only guy I've ever met who's done a wet plate hologram. <laughs> yeah. Well, was, what, what exactly is that? Okay, when you do a hologram, you have to sh- you shoot on the film or well, a, a traditional hologram you shoot on the film or glass plates. And for my PhD, I, I set up a system with, with a lot of help um, 
where the we had a glass plate, exposed glass plate, and that that has the photosensitive chemicals on it. And it has a ASA number of one, mm-hmm. you know, a half, something like that. And uh, actually, I got a got a story that I was back in our test room, had this thing all set up, and unboxed the plates because you know the room is is perfectly dark because the whole room turns out to be the sort of the inside of your camera and uh whole room's dark and i'm sitting there trying to put the plate in the holder and realize wait a minute i i, I want the emulsion to be towards the light but i don't know which side has the emulsion <laughs> well and it's not like you can look what do you do you know i was waiting i was hoping this thing had a corner ground off it so like a like a punch card you know it would only go in one way yeah. No, that didn't work. And so I had to yell through the door at the lab manager who was out there with his buddies. It was lunchtime, so they were playing cards. And uh, he said, well, you know, I want the emulsion towards the light, right? And he yelled back in and says, yeah, that's right. And I said, well, how do I tell? And he goes, oh, you taste it. Oh, jeez. And I'm like, well, doesn't that make you stupid? <laughs> and he said, no, no, it's it's easy. And so... You know, after lunch, he came back in and showed me, and he could get it in one taste. You know, there's 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 four corners and two sides. So you got eight eight shots at it, and he he could catch it every time. He's only allowed to taste the, the slide once. I was in the six to seven range most of the time. So not only did I do wet plate holograms, I actually had to taste the slides. Wow, I don't recommend it, by the way. Yeah, we're going to have to splice in a little audio here. Any listeners from OSHA has to stop reading. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I'll tell you right now, it's a real bad idea. Yeah, yeah. Anybody in the health and safety fields, just stop listening before this part. <laughs> right. So now, Mark, you went, you were, you did this work at, uh, at the Air Force, and then you went on to work for Lear uh, Corporation in their noise and vibration group. And I'm kind of curious how these three areas that you did research in at the Air Force led you into uh, taking a, uh, you know, a corporate job in this area of noise and vibration? Well, um, I, I had been doing a lot of no- noise and vibration work in the photomechanics lab. It was, it was di- structural dynamics a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's how I got into the job. And, but I didn't know anything about making sound measurements. I'd never, I'd never worked you know, in, in that field. And it was one of these these funny things, you know. They said one day we need a photo, or a, we need a, a psychoacoustics expert, and they just pointed at me and went, "You." <laughs> and I went, um, "Okay." <laughs> and about that time, also the the guy who hired me in to the uh, photo or the the uh, noise and vibration lab moved on to another part of the company, so they made me the lab manager as well. So I had kind of a a dual job right and it was one of these things you, you know they you, you get designated the expert whether you are or not and, but after you answer enough questions and make enough measurements and do enough tests you really are the expert that, that's kind of how it happened yeah see i would have thought uh the noise and vibration would have went more with the flutter analysis uh you know it seems like it would be vibrations that built up but maybe i'm misunderstanding it no no you're that's that the Flutter calculations I did. The, the difference was that in when I was doing uh, aeroelasticity and flutter work, that was all analytical. Oh, okay. um, I, I was an observer at a wind tunnel test one time, but that was as close as I got to doing uh, uh, experimental stuff. Mm-hmm. And in the photomechanics lab, it was pretty much 100% uh, 
experimental. Okay. And so really between those two, it prepared me pretty well for going into the automotive world. Cool. And this was at Lear, you said? Mm-hmm. Like the, yeah. the Lear jet company that makes those fancy corporate planes? No, sorry. Different Lear. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's a company that, that does car interiors. They did, it was called Lear Seating when I got there. Oh, okay. And they changed the company to name to Lear Corporation. All right. Cars are not planes. <laughs> yeah. Not not a mechanical engineer, but I know that much. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Although their interior their their interiors are sort of similar. Yeah, they actually they actually kind of are. But uh, yeah, it was a, a car interior company. Did uh, I got more interior. legroom in my car than the plane? Yeah, <laughs> tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. So, Mark, did you like being a manager? Oh, keep in mind there's only one answer for our podcast. <laughs> so choose your words wisely. How much didn't you like being a manager? <laughs> I like having been a manager. Ooh, that, that's a good answer. Uh, that is a good answer. Is that tactful enough? Yeah. I, I actually don't care how you answered it, but, you know, I'm going yeah, for it's, more value. Yeah. You know, it's one of these things. I, I'm a much better employee for having been a manager, even though I wasn't, you know, I was kind of okay as a manager. I was pretty good with the people end of things, but I wasn't. I, I didn't like doing the the budgeting and that kind of stuff. I, you know, when I thought nobody was, pardon me, the paperwork aspect. Yeah, and you know, when I thought nobody was looking, I'd go back to my desk and write an uh, engineering paper. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of. I did, did enough of that and figured, well, I better, <laughs> I, I better go back over the wall. I think. Yeah, this this clearly it, isn't for me. Yeah, and it was a it was an extremely high stress job. Um, I was I had a a. Uh, Habit on uh, Rolaids, not the Rolaids. What are those? Ooh. Yeah, like, like oh, Tums. Tums. That's yes, yeah, what they are. I, I had a Tums habit. You wouldn't believe. Oh. <laughs> you know, about every two weeks, I get one of those great big bottles of Tums. Yeah, and throw away all the all the cherry ones because they're nasty, <laughs> and eat the rest of them and over the course of a couple of weeks. You know, two weeks, and have to go back and get some more. You know, so you look at this, it's like, well, where's this headed? Yeah, that's not that's not good for you long term. No, <laughs> I don't think so. And you know, I'm, I'm also not a doctor, but I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not that kind of doctor, and I can tell you that. <laughs> and it, it just I wasn't the right guy for the job. You know, I was okay at it, but I I really much prefer being an engineer than being a manager. Yeah. It, it it made me have an awful lot of respect for a good manager and realize that when I'm working for a good manager, my life is better. Mm-hmm. So it's it was I'm very glad to have had the job you know I did it for three years and that was that was about right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good managers are hard to come by. I was getting promoted at the same time I left, so I got the <laughs> I got the company car and the job offer from another company in the same day. Wow! I'm like <laughs> boy, that'll that'll focus your attention like few other things can. <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> Driving home, going boy, this is a nice car, but geez, is it worth it? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll try it out for a little bit longer. So, having looked at your resume, I know that you gave the car back. Yeah, I had to give the car back. <laughs> Funny when you leave the company, you have to give the company car back. That doesn't that doesn't seem right. <laughs> no, they, they were pretty adamant about it. No. Otherwise, warrants are issued. It really sucks. <laughs> it was a Taurus. I mean, it was wasn't great. But <laughs> I was driving an Escort at the time, so it was a step up. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so you you moved to uh, Bosch Corporation, which was another auto parts or yes. auto supplier, and and I'm just wondering at this point in your career, are you are you at all disappointed that you weren't working in the aerospace industry? Uh, 
a little bit. I'd gotten I'd gotten some some offers for aerospace companies, and it you know one of them was in California, and the the price of living was so high we couldn't live there. Right. And the other one was in. Actually, I had three or four offers by then. They, they, they struck me as being very temporary jobs. I mean, not because people meant for them to be temporary, but you know, while the, while the contract was on, everybody was living living large. But as soon as the contract ended, everybody was going to get laid off, mm-hmm. which is pretty typical of the of the aerospace world. And I just, um, yeah, it just just wasn't an environment I wanted to work in. Right. So you were at Lear for what another three and a half years? I'm sorry, you were was, at Bosch for another three and a half years. Uh, no, I was at Lear for three and a half years and Bosch for five and a half. Oh, okay. And and so at that point, you're sort of uh, if if one were looking at your you know your resume, they'd go, well, Mark is pretty established in an in industrial uh, career. In the mm-hmm. middle of this career, what what caused you to up and move to Purdue University? Well, um, my wife and I had, had kind of planned it out that I'd work for the government for 10 years, industry for 10 years, and then go to academia. I'd been a, <laughs> a, a, a adjunct at Wright State and at UM Dearborn, and I knew I liked teaching. I knew I was, I was, you know, I really found it challenging and rewarding and everything, and I you know, thought it might be fun to do that for a living. But I didn't really see there any point in trying to become a teacher of engineering students until I'd made my living as an engineer. It just it didn't seem it didn't seem consistent. Right. So um, after about nine years at the, at the uh, in the automotive industry, um, I started looking for academic jobs. Um, the other part of it was that you didn't have to be too bright to look around and see that the aeros- that the automotive industry was about to cave in. Um, the, the, the way the companies were running themselves where it was obvious that there was going to be some big bankruptcies coming up and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't want to be around when that happened. Right. So this was in the 2005, 2006 range or? Uh, a little before then. We got out in 2004. Okay. That we got out of Detroit about at the peak of the market, of the housing market. So couldn't, couldn't have got out any later, I don't think. Hmm. And it was, you know, we got to Purdue and got established there just about in time for Detroit to just absolutely implode. Right. Right. And, and, and was there anything special about Purdue? Uh, any connections or was it their program or you liked uh, the people you'd have a chance to work with? Well, a, a lot of everything. A lot of those. Um, I had uh, that. That's the engineer interview cycle. I actually had two offers: one at Purdue and one at a, a school um, in Southern Illinois. And I was going to take one of them. We were leaving one way or the other. <laughs> right. And the thing I liked about um, the mechanical engineering de- technology department is they seemed to have a, a real nice balance between. You know, teaching, research, and uh, you know, lots of, lots of hands-on stuff. It seemed to be a real good fit for me. Well, good, good. So now you, you were, did you immediately uh, hire in as a professor of mechanical engineering technology? Well, <laughs> no. Okay. Um, 
there's in the in the academic world there's three levels three ranks of professors okay there, at the very bottom there's assistant professor right and then there's associate professor and there's full professor and uh, the the funny thing about the academic world is there's no on ramp there's no uh, you don't the the fact that I had you know engineering experience and patents and management experience and everything else didn't matter <laughs> if I wanted the job I had to go in as an assistant professor okay and I kind of I kind of chafed at that for a while you know as I was going through the interview process at Purdue and other places realized there was no way in except as an assistant professor so finally I just said ah screw it good enough I'll take it and when you come in as an assistant professor you're untenured right and you have to go through the tenure process which is like getting beat with barbed wire. Boy, it is not fun. Let me tell you. I mean, the job's fun. the The constant threat of dismissal is not fun. Right. And there's no there. You have to apply for tenure, and you have to, you know, submit this this long document explaining all the stuff you've done that makes you know why they ought to keep you. And there's no second chance. You either make tenure or you get or you get fired. Oh, really? there's, I that. Yeah, there's no there's no partial on this. There's, if you can't say, "Oh, I'll try again next year," there there ain't no next year. Right. You either make it or you get fired. And so it's just a, never apply for tenure. Do they just keep you around as an assistant? No, then nope. Then you get fired. Oh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So you either make you make associate after it's either five or six years, or you're gone. And so. You know, I went in knowing that, but boy, it was it, it was stressful. It was very stressful. Yeah. So now I'm a, I'm I'm risen to the lofty rank of associate professor. Wonderful. And um, I, I now I have time. You know, I can wait wait till I'm good and ready to apply for full. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Well, so, well, go ahead. Okay, I, I had a quick question. We we, we mentioned earlier, um, you know, you you before this teaching position came around, you never even heard of mechanical technology. Um, do you, do you know is it a like an uncommon major for schools to have, or is it just like a new program that hasn't been around that long? No, it's actually not very common. Um, it's there. There's there's many fewer engineering technology programs than there are engineering programs. Um, the I don't know if you ever heard of something called the Grinter Report. I feel like I've heard it in name, but I'm not sure. We've talked about it a time or two, especially when we interviewed uh, uh, Dave Goldberg. Oh, uh, he was oh talking yes. About, oh, yeah, he would know. It's coming back to me now. Yeah. So the go ahead, go ahead, Mark. Tell us about the Grinter Report. Well, this is a report that that came about sort of during the Sputnik era, and the idea is what you know when everybody thought the Russians were were whipping up on us, um, you know, wanted to. It was a document to plan out the future of engineering education in the U.S., and they thought that engineering should become uh, engineering science. It should become much more analytical, much more theoretical than it was. Yeah, they're under the assumption that physics had won World War II. Yeah, well... With the atom bomb and everything, it, it didn't hurt. But yeah, there was there, <laughs> there, there was room for everybody there, I think. And um, so, the original draft of the Grinter report suggested there had to be engineering science and engineering technology, and that that part I don't think made it into the final draft. But uh, when the Grinter report came around, you know, and all engineering became 
the engineering that, that that we've experienced, engineering science. Before that, it was the it was the engineering that my dad experienced. He went to engineering school in the I guess it would have been the late fifties. And so what he did in engineering school is almost exactly engineering technology. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the the way it's kind of played out now is there's lots of engineering schools in the in the country. Um, there are m- much many fewer engineering technology programs, which is kind of a shame. I think I, I think there's a there's a definite uh, market for the engineering technology graduates. Mm-hmm. Well, you know we we've got really really high placement rates and. Yeah. Um, when a company gets a co, you know, one of our students, they'll very often come back for more. Right. Mm-hmm. I guess I took it for granted that I went to a school with a technology program. Yeah, that's a little unusual. Yeah. yeah Where'd you go to school? Uh, RIT in Rochester, New York. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they have a, a pretty well-established tech program, from what I understand. Fun stuff. Yeah, definitely. One of the couple of my friends. Yeah, I talked about the one who works for the power plant, and another one works for. Uh, some airplane engine company doing engine testing. So, well, that sounds like fun. Yeah, he. I <laughs> talked to him once or twice. I ran into him at a career fair, and he was having a blast. So, Mark, do you have any idea whether, you know, it's it's hard to tell without doing some sort of official survey, but whether more engineers would be happier if they were taking a technology program instead of the the engineering program they they were in. Oh gosh, that's a tough one. Um, I, I, I just I just think about all the number of people that got get into engineering because they're told you need this degree in order to make stuff and build stuff and you know change the world, uh, but then immediately you you know you're yanked away from any as you you know yeah. you talked about with your career and mine was certainly the same way. You're yanked away from any hands-on activity. You don't get to you know you don't get to machine anything or cast anything or or yeah. assemble anything, and you just do math, 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 math. Yeah, mm-hmm. There's that bait and switch from first robotics to first year calculus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my uh, my 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 kids are both real into first robotics, so yeah, it's it's a and neither one of them look like they're going to be engineers, but um, yeah, the you know I had a real eye opening comment uh, about a year ago. I was talking to a guy who's a sculptor, mm-hmm. or a kind of a sculptor. He makes 3D art. And uh, he said, yeah, I became an artist because I wanted to make things. And I went, oh, that's where you go to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and the we get students in all the time who, who are – yeah, I feel I feel like they've got the had, had the bait and switch thing that you know they're they're doing okay in engineering but they don't like it you know it's it's too abstract for them mm-hmm. and I I think there's probably an awful lot of people who get into engineering who who uh, either don't have the opportunity to check out engineering technology or or don't don't think to do it I, like I said I didn't know what engineering technology was if I did I probably would have checked it out. Um, and I mean, I can't tell you how many students are are sticking out engineering because they kind of have to and and should probably be engineering technologists. Um, you know, I'm, I'm guessing it's a lot. You know, whether it's a majority or not, I doubt. But there's there's an awful lot of of uh, awful lot of students who who would be happier somewhere else. I think. So so, Mark, how does the curriculum differ between? If you were getting a mechanical engineering degree versus a mechanical engineering technology degree, 
Well, it it depends probably on the school. I can tell you about ours. Um, if you look at it just from you know ten feet away, it looks a little bit like the engineering curriculum. But uh, if you look at the way we teach our classes, they're they're uh, like I say much more hands on. You know, we've got a foundry. When it's time to learn about about metal casting, you go to the foundry and you cast metal. You know, you want to learn how how uh, you know CNC mills work. You go down and you get on a CNC mill and figure it out. You know, want to know how welding works? We well, go to the welding lab. Um, in in electrical engineering technology, you know, if it's time to learn how robots work, you build robots. You don't you don't sit around and study them. <laughs> so we've got uh, our our mathematics is less. How do I say this right? There's a, there's less less mathematics um, that and the, the space that gets opened up in that gets gets uh, devoted to uh, lab work and hands-on work. Is it is it more extensive labs than is in the typical engineering curriculum? You know, is your engineering circuits class uh, more than just like resistor dividers and simple stuff? Or yeah, if you look yeah. at the uh, the uh, electrical and en- electrical engineering technology cl- courses, they start you know with just the RLC circuits and go up through you know programming digital circuits and you know making robots. Um, one of the the other differences, and I, I want to make sure I don't come across as sounding like I'm, I'm, I'm all down on the engineering folks. I'm, I'm really not. They've, you know, especially at Purdue, they've, they, they're hugely successful, and they've, they've earned every bit of that. This is just another way of looking at the, at the educational system. Oh yeah, yeah, and at the same um, point, we're not trying to come down on engineering tech majors either. It's just to try and understand, yeah, okay. trying to understand the other side. Yeah, there's there's room for everybody in the in the playground here. Um, let's see the, the I guess one of the big differences between engineering and engineering technology is that an awful lot of what goes on in engineering is preparing you for graduate school. Hmm. And in engineering technology, relatively few of our students go to graduate school. Now we have graduate degrees. Um, but it's a small number of students who go do that. The, the vast majority of our students go off to industry, mm-hmm. and if they do go to graduate school, a lot of times it's an MBA. Okay. Mm-hmm. If they just stay technical, is it a, a master's of engineering instead of a master of science? Or I, um, I think I've heard see. about people if, doing those degrees. I don't know if I actually know anybody who got one. I'm trying to think of what our degree is. I should know. Our degree is called. I think it's a master of science in technology. Okay. But there's. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, but they're 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 we're working on some degrees on in would uh, be a master of science in in mechanical engineering technology in MSMET. Cool. Right. Yeah, I think at RIT there was you, the master of science, which was thesis based, and you know, like you said, you were meant to go to grad school and keep going. And then I heard of like a master of engineering degree which was project-based instead of thesis-based. Yeah, actually, um, University of Dayton, where I went to school, did that at the doctoral level, which I thought was a really cool idea. They've got a PhD, which is the degree I got, and a doctor of engineering, which was meant to be much more applied. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. See, I would do that. I I have no no interest in writing a a dissertation. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I got about halfway through it and thought about switching, and my wife was like, you know you're going to be disappointed in yourself if you switch now. I'm like, yeah, okay. Because you guys had it planned out in 20 years. You had to go to academia. That sounds kind of crazy now that you say that. We have a 20-year plan, but we did. And And it it worked, too. That's the crazy part. Yeah, yeah. It planned out exactly like you said. So, Mark, my just my quick review of, of the you know engineering technology curriculum is that you have to you have to give up something in there, and so the the hands on stuff that that your students get to do, they get to do that because a lot of the time that's spent in engineering classes doing, it's not like you don't examine the same equations, but the derivation of those equations doesn't get as much emphasis. So, you know, if, if there's a stress equation or or you know a, a beam bending or something, it's not like you don't discuss those things, but uh, less time is spent deriving those equations. Yeah, that, that's quite true. And if if you look at how uh, engineering math goes, you take two calculus classes your first year, and you let's see, how did you see at Virginia Tech? They had quarters, so I know how to do this in quarters. Uh, RIT had quarters too. When I oh, went did there. They? they? Yeah, they just switched like a year or two ago to semesters. But yeah, when I went there was quarters. Okay, well in quarters it goes calc one, calc two, calc three, calc two four. Bear. Oh, we called it multivare. Yeah, we I forgot what we called it. Probably something yeah. unrepeatable. Um, <laughs> and then we did Diffie linear yeah, linear algebra and differential equations in I don't know, I forgot which order. In engineering technology, there's two ca- there's two calculus classes and they're they're pretty uh, prescribed. They're not they, they don't go too far afield on these. And that's it. There's no linear algebra, there's no differential equations because it isn't part of the curriculum. You know, so there's another way we 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 get some white space available to uh, uh, put in these uh, lab classes. Interesting. That's that's kind of cool. So does that uh, does that affect you know come graduation? Does that affect the students? You know, if if there's student A and B and one did engineering, one did engineering tech because they don't have that math base. Do you find them going to more testing and application level jobs instead of like the real R and D at a fundamental level? Or does it kind of mix? Well, it's it's a with this many students leaving, you know, graduating. It's a complicated uh, picture. We'd, yeah, I, yeah I, there's I, no I, one answer. Yeah, I, I don't know of of any of our students who've gone into R. Well, I take that back. The you know Toyota has an R and D center in uh, near Ann Arbor, Michigan, and we've got okay. graduates there. I think um, we've got. Actually, my personal favorite is a young lady who decided she wanted to be an Imagineer at Disney. That's actually their their job title is Imagineer. Yeah. And mm-hmm. by God, she did it. And so <laughs> she went there to help develop these these uh, attractions. You know, somebody's got to design these rides. Oh yeah, I remember before without going off on a rant. Before the History Channel started sucking, they had a real long <laughs> like two part <laughs> two part thing about how Disney World was built, and it, it's pretty crazy the engineering that they do. Oh there. yeah. Well, yeah, I the know, one, I, um, the Yeti, the roller coaster with a Yeti, like it was like three or four different intersecting structures that couldn't touch, but all had to interact and be built at the same time. And wow, it, it looked crazy. It was, it's a real good special. Um, yeah, History Channel, Disney World, can't remember the actual title, but it was pre pre suck History Channel. <laughs> <laughs> not that you're bitter or anything. No, not at all. I, I, now I have to, now I binge on Netflix instead of the History Channel. Yeah, that's that's where I am. Yeah. You mean it wasn't built by aliens? No, no, the aliens didn't come. Not yet, anyways. They're still digging. They're looking for the facts. The truth is out there. 
<laughs> well, to, to get back to your question, we've got um, I've got a student who went to the GE engine test facility down near Cincinnati. Um, bunches of them go into manufacturing. A lot of times they'll go into supervision or get into supervision fairly quickly. Uh, lots of uh, sales engineers come out. Uh, you know, it's just it, it's just all over the place. I had one go to Apple. I got an email from him. He said, I'm standing in a room in China that has 1,200 CNCs in it. <laughs> My goodness, a lot of CNCs. Oh, that's a lot of CNCs. And they were all making iPods. Well, yeah, I guess you have to machine the aluminum for the back. Yeah, somebody's got to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so it's I, I get a, a lot of, uh, you know, really, really... Uh, very a lot of variation in what the students wind up doing. It's probably the same in engineering. Oh yeah, um, yeah. There and what's happening now is the program has been in place long enough that we're starting to get senior executives who come out of the engineering technology program, mm-hmm. and it doesn't seem to have hurt them any. Wow. No, I wonder. I'm curious to see how that plays out in another ten or fifteen, twenty years. You know, you yeah. Got all those guys who have the project-based education finally mm-hmm. up at the VIP level. Who are they going to say you should hire? Yeah, like I said, when they, they, they get a couple of METs and find out what they're capable of doing, the, the companies will generally come back for more. That's, yeah. That's a, yeah. A really gratifying. Yeah, especially if they have the support of the employees below them, you know, because they got yeah. all that hands-on knowledge and work their way up. Well, now, the, the flip side of this is every once in a while um, during one of the, the uh, job fairs we have, We'll get a company, say, that has one of their uh, HR folks will be there and say, well, we don't hire your graduates. We don't hire METs. We wind up having to say, yes, you do. Would you like a list of the people, <laughs> of our graduates who work for your company? We can we can give you that information if you like. Right. <laughs> um, uh, have you ever had, you know, we've talked about students making the jump from, you know, potentially engineering to engineering tech because they want that hands-on. Have you ever had anyone go the other way? You know, they want to go deeper into the fundamentals and they enjoy that math. And yeah, once in a while, um, it's it's tough to do though because the the if you're coming from engineering to engineering technology, basically all your courses transfer. Yeah. If you're going the other way, hardly any of them transfer. So you can go the other way if you want, but you're going to have to pretty much start from scratch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope you came in with some AP credit. Yeah. <laughs> Give you more flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about the uh, the advantage that technology students get if they're looking for, you know, hands-on activities. They get a chance to cast something. They get a chance to build something and, and, and machine something. Uh, but there's a, you know, there are certain authors and uh, certain thinkers that talk about the advantages of, of hands-on education, that there's something about being hands-on that you don't get from a purely... Uh, abstract background. I'm thinking of the book uh, Shop Class of Soulcraft mm-hmm. uh, by Matthew Crawford. Uh, any thoughts on, on what students are able to learn being hands-on that they don't get if they're just uh, doing a lot of pencil work? Well, it's... Okay, let, let, me, let me tell you about my own experience. How about that? Sure. That'd be great. Um, no, we didn't have you on a guest as a guest to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about little... somebody, somebody else's experience. Yeah, okay, well. Um, I, had a, I always had a real hard time learning by watching somebody write stuff on the board. Now, now other people can, 
there's there's tactile learners and there's auditory learners and there's you know the, all these people. I'm probably a tactile learner. Um, I I do best when I can get my hands, you know, on on the on the product. You know, yeah. I'm going to learn more from a, a Lego Robotics than I am from uh, looking at robotics equations on the board. Not everybody's like me. You know, some people can sit down and learn in a very abstract environment. Um, mm-hmm. Engineering technology tends to attract the ones who are like me. You know, I, I find my students. Uh, well, here let me give you an example. We started a 3D printing lab. We bought uh, 11 replicator twos and put them in a in what had been a an office room, and set them up with eight computers, and just oh, threw the door open. Come on in. You know, we we had a, a, a donation, so we bought twenty-two hundred dollars worth of plastic. And said, told told the students, come on in, make stuff. You know, hundred percent. They say, what does it cost? Hey, hundred percent discount. Sorry, but that's nice. the best I can do for you. <laughs> um, and you know, they'd come in with things they wanted to make, and you know, you, you got a great idea. Come on in and make one. Yeah. And they they would stand at the door for a second, like you've got to be kidding. Is this real? So, yeah, this yeah. is real. And so when when they could, were designing a part for a. A robot, or you know, some some gizmo they were working on, and by being able to print it out and see it in 3D, gave them insight that they would have had a hard time even looking at a CAD, you know, a 3D CAD projection. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, you can you can rotate the 3D thing, uh, you know, your mock-up, but it's not the same as holding it in your hands. Yeah. And I saw that once before when I was working with Bosch. One of the the many products we made was intake manifolds for cars. And the geometry of intake manifolds is a lot more complicated than you'd think. Like, it got to the point where you'd have it up on the screen and trying to rotate it on the screen, you still couldn't tell what you were looking at. And what we we got in the habit of doing is printing the, the, the manifolds out quarter scale, you know, about size of a sheet of paper kind of thing and carry it around with you and so you could go to a meeting and just hand them this little model and say here this is what we mean oh okay you know that that saved us tons of money in meeting time and there's there's something about being able to get your hands on a process or a part or a you know product of some sort that we we connect with that in ways that we're not going to be able to do when we're looking at it analytically. Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, I'm just always interested in the the part where we we offer students, engineering students, uh, you know, build a you know a better mousetrap or do the egg drop or or you know get involved in first robotics, uh, and then we yank them away from anything that's hands on, and we say, okay, now we're going to send you through you know, four or five years of pure abstract math uh, in the hopes that when you get done, you're, you will then be qualified to go out in the real world and build stuff again. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> seems kind of unlikely when you say it that way. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, there's, there's, there's probably something to that. I mean, when I graduated, when I got my undergraduate degree, you know, I was there with 1,100 of my closest friends while they you know, marched us all across the stage and gave us our diplomas. And I got back to my little folding chair and sat down. And the very first thing I did was, was 
was open up this envelope to make sure that diploma was really in there. <laughs> yes. And the first thing is it was really in there. And my second, the second thing I thought was, what are they thinking? I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I still think that at least once or twice a day. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, uh, that the flip side of it is, you know, we don't teach our students to think in terms of, you know, abstract math or differential equations. And there, if you get into some of the really complex concepts, our students are going to have to try to pick that up. It's, there's a, you know, nothing's free, you know, as, as we take things out of the, have taken things out of the curriculum in order to make sure that, you know, we have the, the, the hands-on approach, uh, content that, you know, there's that other stuff we're not getting. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's different between uh, MET and ME is METs are not eligible to take the engineering fundamentals exam. Really? Yeah. If you want to take the the, I think it's called the is it engineering training or engineering fundamentals? It's engineering fundamentals, I guess. They've changed the name somewhere along the way. It used to yeah. be engineering and training. Okay. It's F, the FE exam. Okay. It was EIT when I took it a billion years ago. Um, but you know when when I wanted to take it, I just pretty much signed up and went and took it. But if our students want to take it, they have to go back and take a bunch of math courses. Um, that they didn't get as part of the uh, ET curriculum. Wow, that's kind of a bummer. Yeah, now some do. You know, it does not a lot, but a few do. Right. Well, well. So let me ask you about uh, what I suppose must be your your closest brush with uh, with uh, fame, and and that is that uh, one of the research projects that came out of out of your I don't know group there at Purdue. Was something called a supersonic ping pong gun? <laughs> yeah, that's how, how, how did this how did this device spring into your mind? Um, well, hard to believe that this is my claim to fame, but it seems to be the thus. Um, there's a, a ping pong gun that's been around for a while, you know, long before me, and it, I can't remember who designed it, or I'd tell you, but it it, it shows has shown up in some of the physics journals. And I, I saw it, and the first thing I thought is, well, i got to make one of these. And so I made one, blew a dent in the wall of my office when I finally got it working, by the way. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, how do I say this right? I wasn't prepared for the kinetic energy that I was getting. Um, and it it shoots, oh, six or 700 feet a second. It's not the most consistent firing thing in the world. And I've made three or four of them over the years, and I've dragged them everywhere. Uh, and mm-hmm. I've, you know, for Boy Scout troops and take them into schools and things like that. You know, and you watch this thing. You know, I, I, I buy balls in 144 uh, ball boxes. Yeah, and, uh, the, the case. Yeah, the, ca- the case of balls. And by the way, I, I've become a bit of a connoisseur in what kind of ping pong balls work the best. My, my my favorite ones. These are my. You buy um, three or four star balls. They're competition ping pong balls because they they have real thick uh, shells. They work better. And there was a a brand I got for a while called Double Happiness. They came from China. Right. And I, I'm I'm guessing somebody right. took the low bid on the translation on the side of the box. They they were great. Loved them. And you knew they were good because the side of the box said that the ball, these balls have a fluently professional beat feeling. 
<laughs> like, <laughs> how, how could I not want that? <laughs> but Fancy. In, yeah. So anyway, you know, we've done all kinds of measurements and laser tests and everything on the on these these ping pong guns, and they all shot at about six or seven hundred feet a second. And you watch this, you know, shooting hundreds and hundreds of balls. You can't help but think there's got to be a way to make this thing go faster. There's just got to be. I want to go supersonic. That's what I want to do. And uh, there's a, a thing called a, a convergent-divergent nozzle that goes on a supersonic wind tunnel. And at Dawn Dummy, basically what we've got is a blowdown tunnel. And so if you take take the, the uh, subsonic ping-pong gun, put a pressure chamber upstream of it and put a convergent divergent nozzle in between what you've got is a supersonic wind tunnel hmm. and if you can if you can blow enough air down that tunnel you'll move the ball the ball won't slow the air down and so i had the idea and then gave it to my uh two grad students jimmy and craig wherever you find one of them you find the other by the way it's just jimmy and craig it's never jimmy and craig it's jimmy and craig and okay. they're just absolutely the best really really good students and so you know i sketched it out on my board so here's what i want you to build and they they took it from there and did all the work to build the thing we started they and they started sending me or uh, texting me pictures of stuff they'd blown up down in the lab they put a they put a dent in the side of a steel cabinet um, they were blowing holes through boxes full of, of tools <laughs> I mean I mean real just I mean the carnage was just epic so, and, so what uh, kind of velocity were they getting at this point um, about Mach 1.2 wow 900 and so nine, they did it in miles an hour. I can't, I can't seem to break them of that habit. It was 905 miles an hour or something like that. Okay, so an improvement of like 30% over... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the, then, you know, once we knew it worked, I wrote up this little paper, you know, five pages, and put it out on the uh, physics archive, you know, this... this uh, uh, sort of an open the, repository? Yeah, repository. Yeah. That's the word I'm looking for. That just all I was trying to do is just sort of, you know, you know, pee in the corner basically. <laughs> that, you know, that we were we were the first guys to come up with this, and I didn't think anything of it. I didn't think anybody'd even read it. And two days later, I got a a call from some somebody in the press who started asking me about it, and we got more and more and more of this going on. So we, you know, all these interviews and and. Uh, camera crews coming in but it was just nuts we're still getting them right <laughs> and uh the, the the supersonic ping pong gun seems to be the right combination of high tech yet cool you know yeah. i never would have guessed yeah. i certainly didn't have any idea that it was going anywhere it was just uh i, I was as surprised as anybody that, that people picked up on it <laughs> and the the really cool part is when we got uh a company called uh, motion engineering to bring a, a high-speed video camera and i mean high speed i mean like seventy thousand frames a second wow, wow that's serious business yeah that's that's really yeah, that, the camera's real money too let me tell you and uh <laughs> they were kind enough to bring the camera up and, and shoot some video for us and uh the the really cool one is you put you fill the ball with water jimmy and craig figured out that you could use a syringe to fill the ball with water and then you super glue the hole shut mm -hmm. and even with all that additional mass, uh, 
you can, you know, it, it fires pretty well, and it'll wad up a piece of O35 steel plate like it was tin foil. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> it's really freaking cool. Jeez. Did you um, use your uh, garbage can catching to sit there with a catcher's mitt? No, there's tunnel? no. People always ask me that. Would you get in front of it? No. Would you get in front of a pistol bullet? No. It's got the same kinetic energy as a 32 caliber pistol round. No, I'm not getting in front of it. I think I'm stupid. <laughs> But the, and the, the, probably the most fun one we did was that's what um, you have research assistants. Yeah, <laughs> that's what interns are for. They're not that disposable. <laughs> um, but the the most fun part was to, to clamp a uh, ping pong paddle in front of the gun, and just with the unmodified ball, no no water in it or anything. The the uh, ball goes right through the paddle. I mean, just blasts right through it. Yeah, I can, and, I'm looking at the picture now. There's a nice circular hole. Yeah. And so it's, you know, of course, there's there's got to be some uh, uh, pro- product manager at our local Walmart going, who's buying all these ping pong paddles? Because <laughs> <laughs> they only, they're only good for one shot. <laughs> <laughs> you, should, you should start stacking them up and see how many can blow through. Oh, the paddles? Yeah, yeah, and then and make a, a supersonic ping pong paddle that's you know like the size of a tree trunk, but it'll you'd be able to return the surf. <laughs> that never occurred to me. <laughs> oh, I might have I might have to stick Jimmy and Craig on this one. Oh, there you go, awesome. I'm I'm, I'm like fourth author on this paper. <laughs> okay, I got the genesis for the idea. <laughs> All right, Mark, I was going to ask Mark, uh, did you ever get a? Uh, did you ever get a call from the MythBusters? Yeah, I got a call from. We've got a call from a lot of people. Um, the MythBusters uh, actually just aired their show a little while ago, but it was all on ping pong, uh, mm-hmm. supersonic ping pong balls, and it was. I I sat at one point. I was actually sitting in the car talking to their producer, you know, telling them just absolutely everything I knew. <laughs> And it's and I, they they mentioned me too. This is hilarious because I was really hoping they'd mention Jimmy and Craig, but they didn't. But it, uh, you know the the credits rolling at the end. There's one like one frame just you know, with uh, my name on it. It's like and you got it. I'm in the bottom left in this little microscopic text. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Yeah, so mom. I was, yeah, that was me, mom. <laughs> Pardon? You got an IMDb page now too? <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> but, credited uh, on one yeah, episode of Mythbusters. Yeah, we got a um, a fun one. We had the BBC showed up to do a, from a show called Big Weather, and they needed the ping pong gun for some. I'm not supposed to t- tell people exactly what they used it for, but trust me, they used it. And the really funny part was they brought their presenter along, who's Richard Hammond, the guy from Top Gear. Oh, awesome! Yeah, so I got I got oh. to meet Richard Hammond. That's cool. All right, I'm jealous now. Yeah, even more jealous. <laughs> yeah, we we talked about his helicopters, helicopter. Yeah, he seems like a real nice guy too. That's a that's cool. Yeah. Hey, I'm looking at your paper here on the archive, and I got I got a new uh, one for you, a new challenge. Oh uh, no! Can, you can have a rotating nozzle and barrel, and make a supersonic Gatlin gun that fired <laughs> ping pong balls. Yeah, it's not nearly <laughs> lethal enough now. <laughs> no, no, not at all. We have to shoot. We have to shoot more faster. You know, I might leave that one up to you. <laughs> All right, send me a prototype. I'll get something back to you. <laughs> we had the the nozzle is is machined out of a solid block of PVC, a solid mm-hmm. uh, slug of PVC, and we put it on our, our uh, uh, metal lathe. 
what I really want to do is I'm, I'm working on right now is an analysis um, doing the uh, modeling the movement of the ball inside the tube. And uh, what I want to see is whether that nozzle is doing what we think it's doing and whether it's the optimal. Because I just sort of sketched it out, you know, said, well, yeah. it looks up, that looks about like a supersonic wind tunnel here. Make one of those. <laughs> and what we're finding out is that the analysis is just wicked difficult. Because yeah, all, the, yeah. all the assumptions you normally make in a CFD analysis, you can't make for this. This is the – I mean, all, all the – CFD analyses I've been around, this is probably the hardest one. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, and if, you, if you'd have tried to design it from the you know traditional engineering perspective of, all right, well, let's start with this pressure equation here and try and derive it out, you'd, you'd still be chugging out or, you know, messing around with your first prototype. Yeah. It's that trip over my words here. Yeah, it would, it would be pretty difficult, I think. Yeah, yeah. But you had the experience to just, you know, sketch it out and eyeball it and it you know, yeah, what, what I'm worried about is eventually we'll do the analysis and find out the nozzle isn't really necessary. <laughs> there's in the back of my well, mind, yeah, there's, there's that, that fear. There's, there's that too. Yeah. Any new contraptions in the works? Uh, let me think here. Supersonic bowling ball? Uh, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> I've, uh, I think the UN Security Council has to come into the lab then. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to make something that shot tennis balls. I've got when I teach my dynamics class, instead of a, a final exam, that we have a final project that everybody has to make a, uh, a catapult that shoots tennis balls. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to see somebody go. See, I think the biggest, the highest range we got now was it's like three hundred feet, three hundred and twenty feet, something like that. I'd like okay. to see somebody go five hundred feet with. A, for the tennis ball. That would be awesome. How, how high do you have to go to get FAA clearance? Um, we actually shoot right next to the airport. Nobody seems to care. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think you have to go pretty high. I think if you're below 500 feet, you're pretty good. Yeah. Well, well at some point, though, if you're, if, you know, the, the tennis ball collapses, isn't the, is there some limit on how, how much you can collapse that and, and still transfer that energy into the tennis ball? Yeah, probably. That's when you dunk it in liquid nitrogen first. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and in, in true Mythbusters fashion, the only difference between science and screwing around is writing it down. <laughs> so just be sure to do that. <laughs> hey, you know, if you're looking, for, if you're on, on YouTube and looking for fun stuff, there was a Purdue professor who was trying to set the record for the, the fastest way to light a charcoal grill. Have you seen this one? No. Yes, with the oxygen. Yeah, what he does is he sets it up and he pours liquid oxygen on it. And there's the the ultimate was they they put forty pounds of cold charcoal down, with they they took one briquette and they hit it with a torch so it started it kind of smoldering and put it down in the yeah. and that was that was going to be enough to set the liquid nitrogen off and they took a bucket of liquid nitrogen on a very long stick and liquid nitrogen or liquid oxygen. or liquid oxygen I mean thank you yeah, yeah. and uh, on a very long stick and and dumped it and it got. <laughs> what what they described as a biblical tower of flame. <laughs> and so in the course of, I don't know, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, they went from 40 pounds of cold charcoal to 10 pounds of perfect ready-to-go charcoal. Hmm. 
My so what happened to that other 30 pounds? <laughs> <laughs> it just went woof up in the air. Interesting. So you're saying it should only be used to sear the steak, not actually cook it all the way through. <laughs> Burn it to cinders. Yes, yes. Uh, do you have a culinary school at Purdue? You guys could team up with them. We've got a hotel and resta- restaurant management school. Like, Is Purdue literally RIT? I mean, it sounds like you have all the same majors. <laughs> we have that too. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's your, your generic, pretty good ag and engineering school. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like they're pretty similar. Yeah. We've got our own airport. Yeah, we didn't. You got to speak there. Yeah, see? Got our do own you, airport. Do you, have a, do you have a clean room for microelectronics? Uh, yeah. Oh, damn. Uh, what else did we have? Oh, we had a jet in one of our uh, labs in the actual the uh, engineering tech building. There was, um, oh, I forget what the hell kind of jet it was. We've got a seven. Yeah, we had, we had a full working military jet, obviously, with the engines removed. Oh, we don't have a military jet. We've got the, the, com- the, the school has a uh, business jet, or a couple of business mm-hmm. jets, maybe. I, kinda, I don't know. And then there's we, a we, maybe we have those. I don't know. Those are no fun to look at on a tour if we did. Yeah, and we've got a couple of of old airliners that aren't used anymore, but are, are used for teaching. They don't yeah, fly anymore. Cool. Mm-hmm. I, I think this one flew. I, I never got a straight story. If out you got a flying got military like, jet, you win. I, I, I think it. I can't remember if it flew or not. I'll look it up for the the show notes and put it in there. But, okay. Uh, Yes, I got, I got to go in there one time because, you know, they, they saw me, like, peeking in through the window. And they were like, what are you doing? And I was like, I don't know. I just wanted to see the jet. <laughs> so they let me in. And, uh, yeah, it was awesome. Just standing next to it and, you know, checking it all out. Uh-huh. It was never on the approved uh, list because it was way off the beaten path of huh. the, the campus. So you never took tours there when I worked for the admissions office. But uh, I'd always, you know, the kids who were, like, in the – tech program or anybody who just seemed really interested i like, gave them directions i'm like go talk to the jet knock on the door ask for whatever the guy's name <laughs> is and he'll take you in <laughs> tell him Harry's ever happened or if, yeah he was just like this damn emissions office sending sending kids over here to the jet but <laughs> I, I gave him directions at least oh that sounds like fun yeah that was real cool so Mark, when you're you're not working on these uh, these contraptions, these supersonic ping pong guns, uh, I understand that uh, one of your other passions is the guitar. Yes, that's that's my other claim to fame, I guess. Did, and was your interest in you know your noise and vibration background did that lead to the guitar, or are you already playing the guitar and that somehow motivated the the interest in noise and vibration? Um. Boy, how do I say this right? I was—I guess I was interested in guitars. I, I was interested in building them long before I could play them. Okay. Um, it, Jeff likes to ask a lot of the chicken and the egg questions yeah. on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you, you guys, hey, we, you guys we, know the ten thousand hour rule. Sure. Yeah. Okay. If you want to yeah. be good at anything, you got to spend ten thousand hours at it. Well, mm-hmm. I've probably spent pretty close to ten thousand hours building guitars, um, and everybody always asks me, "Oh, you must be a really good player." No, I spent ten thousand hours learning to build them. I can't play the things. I mean, I can a little bit. I can yeah. I can play three chords as well as Johnny Cash and Neil Diamond. How's that? Much much beyond that, I'm I'm out. But I, I, I look forward to your tour. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> extended tour of West Lafayette. <laughs> um, you got to make it to Raleigh at least. Yeah. Okay. But I uh, I got interested in it in around 1990. I'd. Uh, just you know, one of these things I'd wanted to do, and and there was no books or anything I could find, so I, I kind of just tried on my own. And the first, oh gosh, 
six or eight of them were just awful. I hope they're in landfill somewhere. <laughs> and uh, but you know, like anything else, you spend more time at it and you work at it, you get better at it. And uh, I came to Purdue um, having done a lot of guitar testing because I had you know because at the Air Force and at uh, Bosch, I had access to lots of really good test equipment, and you know I could go and test guitars, and I had companies asking me to do this for them, and so mm-hmm. I did that, and then. When I got to uh, Purdue, I came here. Well, I, I came here thinking I was going to work on airplanes. You know, Purdue airplanes, astronauts. Amelia right. Earhart was a Purdue faculty. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I didn't know is that Purdue has lawyers, so we don't do airplanes here. <laughs> yeah, well, we have an airport. That doesn't make any sense. Well, but we we don't build airplanes. We we buy airplanes and fly them. Um, and I thought I was going to be able to build airplanes. Boy, no, no chance anybody was going to let me do that. So I thought, all right, next, next, what's plan B? Plan B must be automotive. That, you know, I've done lots of automotive stuff. There's lots of money in Detroit. And that was just about the time the auto industry was, was caving in. So that didn't work. Mm. And my boss at the time said, well, if, you know, you, you, you build guitars. And I said, yeah. He goes, well, why don't you build some here? If I gave you some space, would you want to set up a guitar lab? And I thought about it for a second. I thought, Guitar Lab, now that's, that, that's something I can work with. And it just sort of took off from there. And then we got the idea of doing summer workshops and using it as a teaching tool. And it's the, the, the whole idea is that I'm trying to teach manufacturing in a, in a really attractive venue. Um, you know, I, I could teach manufacturing, you know, if we were making like, pressure relief valves or something but that's not all that interesting i'll yeah. tell you you never have any problems getting kids interested in guitars you know why don't you come here and build a guitar and learn manufacturing while you're at it and the only thing they hear is guitar <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> which is fine you know you know it's not a bait and switch i tell them what i'm doing that you know i'm teaching you to manufacture a product in a in a you know manu you know, in a factory like environment now that product happens to be pretty cool and you get to keep it when you're done yeah, yeah. So, so, so how do you work at the manufacturing aspect? I mean, I mean, yes, you can obviously say, well, you've got to have materials, and you know, there's inventory. And, but how do you work the the manufacturing aspect? Well, the 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 primary tool we use is a CNC router, and so if they when they want to make like the body for their guitar, they've got to design it using CAD. Um, go from CAD to uh, uh, have to generate tool paths, and then they have to, manu- you know, cut these uh, bodies out, and they all have to be the same. I, I break them down into build groups, and the whole point is of you know manufacturing is to build a whole bunch of things that are all identical. Right. And so one of the things I check them on is how how identical are these? You know, if the, the build group's got ten people in it, you better have ten identical instruments, not, you know. You can paint them different colors if you want, something like that. Yeah. But beyond that, they've got to be identical. As long as there's a skew for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So do the students realize they're learning about manufacturing? You said they don't care when they sign up. Do they realize they've learned it when they're done? Oh, yeah, very much. Okay. Very much. You know, we're ordering parts right now. And I said, okay, what are you going to do when you're uh, – you know this supplier we've you know has this part in their catalog. Um, we contact them and say, "Hey, we need 29 of these," and they say, "We don't have 29." What are you going to do then? 
What's plan B? Because that happens all the time in the real world. Right? Yeah. And so how did how did the guitar sound? You, you have, what, is this a five-day workshop? No, this is a one-semester class. Oh, okay. So, so you do have workshops for building these things. Yeah, we have workshops where we, we work from kits, but from the manufacturing, you're – you know, oh, so so you so you're describing a a semester long course that you teach with this. Yes, yes. I'm okay. sorry, I, I didn't I'm tell sorry, you that. I'm sorry, I got that wrong. Okay. So yeah, there's a semester long class, and then there's week long or two week long workshops. Both. Ah, I get you. And, and, and but my, my original question holds. So how do the guitars sound when they're all done? Mostly pretty good. Um, the the things that make a guitar sound electric guitar sound good are are. Uh, fairly basic and if they build everything like they're supposed to the guitar will sound okay we, ha- we haven't had too many that just aren't playable once in a mm-hmm. while you'll get one yeah but it's it, it, go ahead and all electric guitars or does anybody build an acoustic guitar well we do all electric guitars now i used to do acoustic guitars and i quit doing it because it they spent so much time bending wood and putting it in fixtures and stuff it started looking like a shop class Mm-hmm. And I mean, a shop class is a fine thing, but that's not what this is supposed to be, right? You had to change the focus to keep lined up with the goals. Yeah, exactly. And since they're electric guitars, are you able to work any of the electronics uh, aspect into into the course as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they have to find the wiring diagrams they're using, and um, sometimes when I when the looks like the, I've got enough resources, I have I insist they put some electronics into the guitar in addition to the normal volume and tone stuff like that a lot of time we'll put in a, a little preamp for your headphones so you can plug in your earbuds and play your guitar nice. oh, that's cool oh that makes a lot of sense it's, it seems like it'd be easy enough to do mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> we'll tell you what mark we've we're uh we've run over the hour mark as as usually is as is usually our want and uh so don't want to tie up any more of your uh your okay. evening but uh wanted to thank you for for coming on uh, so if we have listeners and in fact we did we did uh, schedule schedule you onto this podcast because we were interested in engineering technology because we did get some inquiries from our listeners about uh, who wanted to know more about the engineering technology program uh, so if we have any listeners who uh, are thinking about engineering technology or friends or relatives that are interested in technology uh, any advice for them um, bring your curiosity Bring your sense of, of wanting to learn. Bring your sense of wonder. Mm-hmm. You do those things. And if when you actually get admitted to engineering technology, come to class, do your homework. That's, it's, <laughs> people say, what's the secret? That's the secret. Come to class, do your homework, okay? Don't stand but, in front of the ping pong gun. And, yeah, don't stand in front of the <laughs> ping pong gun. That would be bad. <laughs> On the good-bad scale, that's bad. Yeah, yeah. It's not really a spectrum. It's just one one state. <laughs> it's a, yeah, pretty much <laughs> zero one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And if someone wants to get a hold of you, Mark, uh, do you have any good contact info? Yeah. Um, uh, probably try me on my uh, email address. This is probably as good as anything. And my email address is rmfrench at purdue.edu. My real name is Richard Mark French, so it's R-M-F-R-E-N-C-H. And Purdue is spelled P-U-R-D-U-E. All right, wonderful. We'll be sure to link that in the show notes then. Okay. Oh, I should ask, uh, Mark, so is there anything else, any websites or just the email? Uh, just the email is probably the, the easiest thing. 
Okay. Um, if you, if you want to go to my YouTube channel, it's called Purdue MET. P U R D U E M E T. I've got about 200 videos, and it's got all the ping pong gun videos on it. Oh, nice. Well, I know what I'm doing on my lunch breaks now. <laughs> I think that site is going to get a little more traffic. Boring meetings, you know. <laughs> right. Well, Mark, thank you so very, very much for uh, coming on and sharing with us some of your uh, background and, and your information, your your uh, uh, your experience. We, we certainly appreciate that. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Thank you for the interest. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for coming on. Hopefully we can do this again sometime. Okay. All right. All, All right. right. I'll road trip to Cincinnati. We can do our first video podcast and we'll shoot the gun at stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm hung up on this gun. I'm Don't sorry. see what I could wanna... go wrong there. <laughs> No, no, not at all. I'll, I'll attend your guitar building class, and then you will shoot, shoot a guitar. Yeah, the guitar. Okay. yeah, shoot, shoot yeah. the guitar. Okay. Yeah, and then we'll throw the pieces through a wind tunnel, and you can catch it at the other end in the garbage can. Well, we'll just catch everything there. That's good. All right. Cool. It's a plan. <laughs> all right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to Expedia cool. now here and book a flight. <laughs> all right. Well, let's uh, let's call this one done, and uh, okay. thank you again, Mark, for, for helping us out. Oh, my pleasure. All Thanks right. for having me. All right. Have a good evening. Right. Take it easy, guys. Good night. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.